Friends, now turning to the book of Revelation, chapter 14, for our instruction in righteousness, for our instruction in the Word of God. The book of Revelation and the 14th chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Come, let us hear God's holy word together. The Lord help us and give us ears to hear and hearts of faith to receive his word. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders. And no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with woman. For they are virgins, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle, into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress 
even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Amen. So reads God's holy word. This is the word of God. May the Lord be pleased to open it up to our understanding and give us application for life. Let us pray. Well, dear congregation, I would ask you please to turn your very prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing there in the book of Revelation chapter 14. We continue week by week to make our way through the book of Revelation. And last Tuesday, we looked at verses 1 to the verse 5. This first section, chapter 14, really can be divided in three. This evening, with the Lord's help, we'll consider verses 6 to the verse 13, where John sees something else. In verses 1 to 5, he looks and he sees a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. In the verse 6, he sees something else. And then later on, at the end, notice verse 15, sorry, verse 14, and I looked and behold a white cloud, and so on. This chapter, most commentators would divide it in three because of the three visions that John sees. This evening we'll consider the three angels that are before us, and there's much to consider just in these, these verses in chapter 14, verses 6 through to the verse 13. Now I remind you once again that as we make our way through the book of Revelation, and perhaps for anybody listening online or here tonight that hasn't understood yet, the book of Revelation is really seen uh, divided into seven cycles. We're now presently in the midst of the fourth cycle, each cycle showing us major events in the world, but from different perspectives, from different vantage points, important things that take place in this world, most climactic things, major events in this world, from Christ's ascension until his second coming. All these things seen from seven different angles, as it were. The first perspective was that Christ walks amidst his lampstands, his churches. And then we saw from the perspective, didn't we, in the second cycle, of his decrees, everything that happens, takes place in the world, comes because of God's decrees. Nothing happens without his purpose, without his predetermining. All things are of God, the scriptures say. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. There are many scripture proofs that we can cite, both from Old Testament a New Testament that assert very plainly the absolute sovereignty of God in all events. God predestinates a people. There isn't a residuum of grace for those who are not predestinated. There are the elect, and they are predestinated unto eternal life. They will all hear the word of God. They will all be given hearts to repent. And they will all be given faith to believe. Of course, they are first regenerated. And then they are given faith, repentance and faith. All of the 144,000 we saw in chapter 14, verse 1, are upon there, Mount Sion with the Lamb. It's a picture. Remember, as we're now in the midst of the fourth cycle, and by the way, Chapter 14, verse 1, isn't the end of time, but it is a glimpse of really where we are now. Remember last week we said, Paul said, ye are seated with Christ. He has raised us up now, and we are seated together with him in the heavenly places. Remember we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, where the apostle Paul says, ye are not come to Mount Sinai, but ye have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, when we come together to worship as a collected body of people. We come and we gather together with the church universal 
and we praise the Lamb. We are with Christ even now. It's a glimpse amidst. Chapter 13 tells us, doesn't it, that there are persecutions in the world. We were considering in chapter 13 the two beasts, the beast that comes out of the sea, which is the world and the kingdoms of the world and the leaders of the world. And there is another beast. Well, it doesn't look like a beast. looks like a lamb, but it has a voice of terror. It has a voice of destruction. And that second beast fuels the first beast that comes out of the sea. The second beast is the court of religious persecution that incites nations, incites people of this world against the saints. For how long? 1260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, all of those terms really synonymous of the gospel age. Speaking of the gospel age, again, we're in the fourth cycle. And everything that is happening in this world, as we must remember, from the second cycle is subservient to Christ's cause. Everything taking place Here in the book of the Revelation is what God wants us to know. These are the most important things. Of course, there are important things that happen in the world, but all of those things are secondary, but they work to the primary cause and purpose of Almighty God. There's one determined will of God. God does not have two wills. God is not wringing his hands, hoping that men will come to him. No, he is predetermined who will come. He has commanded us to preach the gospel in all the world. We will see tonight that this warfare continues. It's a spiritual warfare that we saw in chapter 12. Things in the unseen world. There is a dragon and he attacks the woman. The woman is the church we've seen and the The church goes into the wilderness. The woman goes into the wilderness for that entire gospel age. But the Lord protects his church. Even when the woman brought forth the man-child who is Christ, and he was taken up to his throne, the great dragon was ready to pounce, as it were, not only on the church, but upon the man-child. But he was taken up to his throne. When Satan thought he defeated the Lord, It was the Lord who defeated Satan. For Christ bore the wrath of Almighty God in the place of his people there upon Calvary. And he cried, it is finished. He bore damnation. And he bore it lovingly. And he cried, to tell us die. And he sat down now at the right hand of the Father. And the Father said, sit down, my son, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So it is a spiritual warfare. We are seeing things in this fourth cycle, which really began in chapter 12, things in the unseen world. And we are told there in Revelation 12, Satan, knowing that his time is short, his wrath is great, and he works through two means in the world, doesn't he? He works, as we saw in chapter 13, through the beast that's coming out of the sea, not some creature that's going to come out of the Atlantic Ocean, or the Indian Ocean. No, it's spiritual language. It's dynamic language meant to convey spiritual truths. These symbols, these pictures. The waters represent, as we've seen in Daniel 7, the many nations and the leaders. And these are all stirred up by religious persecution coming from a pseudo-church. Pseudo-religion. Well, remember in chapter 13, the world is stirred by the lies and misrepresentation of the false prophet, the pretentious lamb with two horns, but speaking violently as a beast, claiming to have the power of God from heaven. Pseudo-religion will last throughout the gospel age. It is a time and times and half a time, three and a half years, as we've seen in the book of Daniel. 
Now, as I said in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 14 last time, we are given sort of a reprieve or a rest during this time of tribulation. And verses 1 to 5 are meant to comfort the church, that Christ is amidst the church. It's not the end of the age here. Chapter, verse, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, is simply the Lord saying he is the conquering one. The Lamb stands. He stands victorious in Mount Zion. And his people are, as it were, as good as with him. The minute we die, we've even read here, blessed are they that die in the Lord. At the close of this chapter, we find judgment. At the close of chapter 14, we find the harvest. There are actually two harvests. The harvest of the wheat and the harvest, as we thought, Lord's Day evening of the tares. Those who are not the Lord's. And they will indeed face the everlasting wrath of Almighty God. So, verses 1 to 5 really is a glorious... Have a look just very briefly there. I say this by way of introduction. A glorious picture of comfort. You see, John sees the risen Christ there. Verse 1, And I looked, and lower lamb stood on the Mount Zion. Again, this is not an earthly Mount Zion. This term... Mount Zion was synonymous with the heavenly Jerusalem. We saw that, didn't we, in Hebrews chapter 12. I don't want to exhaust your time and your thinking on this. We, we, we ought to remember these things. So every time we come and we make progress through the book of the Revelation, I trust that we're not losing the thread of thought. The book of Revelation is not something we can treat lightly. It's not something we can just pick up now and then. You've got to follow it right through. Study it carefully. It's all there. It's not difficult. It's all there for us. Just a little careful study. And so, Hebrews 12, 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, says Paul, and to an innumerable company of angels. He was saying that to persecuted Jews in his day, somewhere just before the fall and destruction of Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul's writing to early Hebrew Christians. And he says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.6, And hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ. We are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. In fact, the word used in Philippians 3.20 is just that. He says, for our conversation, it's the word politimai. It's where we get the word politic or political from. Our polity or our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior. That's where he's coming from, the Lord Jesus, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The scene in Revelation 14, verses 1 to 5, is not what we shall be, but what we are now. We are citizens of heaven. We are one in Christ. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Look there, all 144,000 are with him. And we know that that number is symbolic. Not one of those 144,000 are lost. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I shall in no wise cast out. None shall pluck from his hand, neither the Father's hand. Eternally secure. And there is a glorious praise. The harpers are praising God. The noise comes cascading down to John, as it were, in this vision. It's a vision. It's in the midst of of all the persecution that is taking place. Verses 1 to 5 is a tremendously encouraging section. You consider all the saints that died at the stake, many that were led to have their heads cut off. They know the moment they die, they will be with the Lord. And the Lord is conquering 
Verses 1 to 5 give us the picture that Christ is reigning. He reigns now. He will reign forevermore. The end of the cycle comes really. Notice in the verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud sat like unto one of the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. That is the end of this cycle. Verses 1 to 5 again I emphasize. Those maybe get a little bit confused. And there are some that find this a little bit confusing. You will get confused if you lose the thread. It really is a picture of what we are now, not what we shall be. Eternally with him. We are his now. Our citizenship is in heaven. One day we will see him. Now, verses 1 to 5, as we've said, is what we could say a fait accompli. It is a picture of Christ with his people now, but also what we shall enjoy with him in a fuller extent in heaven. All 144,000 with him. Everyone. Again, that's symbolic of both Old Testament and New Testament saints. Verses 1 to 5. And then this evening, with the Lord's help, verses 6 to 13, the three angels. And we, we see as these three angels, as it were, they have a message. And it's how, really, verses 1 to 5 is actually played out. How has all this come about? How is this fate accompli? Well, because there is a gospel to preach, and the gospel is not hit and miss. Every one of the 144,000 will hear the gospel, and they will repent and believe by the grace of God. Isn't that encouraging? Everyone, not one will be lost. Now, notice the first angel, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. This angel here is pictured as flying. And we know the scriptures teach that there are three heavens. It's not that there's three heavens in the heaven of heaven, but there is the heaven that we can see. The heaven below, which is softer blue. We see the skies, we see the things around us, we see the birds flying in the skies. That's the first heaven we could say. The scriptures don't, they tell us the heavens declare the glory of God. Day unto day, they utter speech, the created order, the sky, the clouds, the stratosphere. And then there's the azure vault, there's the galaxies. The countless constellations, the Milky Way, the stars, we can't count them, but God knows them. He knows everyone by name. And then there is, of course, the heaven of heavens. And we're told in Deuteronomy 10, 14, Behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens. There you have it. The heaven of heavens is the Lord's. The heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord, is the Lord's thy God. The earth also, with all that therein is. And that's where the Lord is. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. But even the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And where is this angel? Well, this angel, most commentators would suggest, and I believe that this is the case, he is flying over, as it were, the world. And the gospel is to be preached. This angel, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. It's not the third heaven which Paul was taken up to. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 2. He said, I was caught up to the third heaven. That's the heaven of heavens. And the things that he saw was not permitted that he should speak of. Was it not lawful? But here... This angel is seen to fly in the midst of heaven, as it were, over the earth, having the everlasting gospel. Now, why is it called the everlasting gospel? Because it was contrived 
It was drawn up by God from everlasting. There never was a time when God had not determined this gospel. The gospel was not drawn up after the fall. But long before God knew all things that would ever take place, the gospel is not some fix-it solution. But the gospel was designed to show forth the grace of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, sorry, Romans 9. And God passing over men in their sin, and God, as it were, predetermining them to his eternal wrath, shows forth his justice, that he's a God against sin. There's a doctrine of reprobation. We believe that. Men are either elect or they reprobate. Election is to show forth the riches of his grace. That's what Ephesians 1 is all about in the first few verses. Paul speaks about this and he, he compares Jacob and Esau, came out of the same mother. God chose the one before the other, even before they were born, before even one did good or the other evil. It was all according to the election of grace Paul speaks about. The gospel is not some hit and miss action on God's part, but it was all determined to show his love toward a people that he had loved even before the world began. The gospel is really based on God's love to his people. Election is on the basis of love. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, the Lord says. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. It was based these who have been redeemed from men are precisely those who he determined, as we will see, from the foundation of the earth to save them. Not any better than others. Not any more deserving than others. In fact, Paul says they, we are by nature children of wrath, even as others. Well, but the gospel is to be preached to all men. I want you to notice that. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. Where well, we said this everlasting gospel is one that God has drawn up from all eternity. But it is a gospel that will save men to all eternity. To take them to heaven, to be with God forever. It is the everlasting gospel. And it's one that we'll never forget. To preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Why? Because we don't know who the Lord will save. We do not know who the elect are. We are called to preach the gospel. That is to declare it. That is what we are called to do. Notice here the angel is not called to offer Christ. We, we don't offer Christ. But there are invitations in the word of God, but who are they made to? Well, it's very clear. Isaiah 55, 1, never use that out of context, my friend. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. Did you hear it? Ho, everyone that thirsteth. Come ye to the waters. Christ is the water. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Man by nature doesn't thirst. He's thirsting for everything else but God. But the sweet invitation is to them that thirst. What do they thirst for? They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. They see that they have none. They have been brought by the Spirit of God to see that they are undone. That they are without hope. The invitation is to the, the sinner that sees himself to be vile. Again in... Matthew 11, what does the Lord say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That is not to the careless man in the street that doesn't care about his soul. It doesn't care whether he sins or not. That invitation is not to him. He comes under conviction of sin by the Spirit of God. And the invitation, the sweet invitation, is to him as he is burdened in his sin. He sees himself to be undone. The gospel is for such who see that they are under a heavy load of guilt and shame. And it's good news to them that repent. 
And you don't ask yourself, am I repenting of myself or am I repenting of the Spirit? You don't ask that. You ask, am I repenting? Am I believing? Those questions are too high for us. God never came with a message and a, a fax to me in those days or an email and said, by the way, you're elect. He convicted me of my sin. I had no special voice from an angel. I knew that moment, it, that day, that I loved Christ and that I was a great and unworthy sinner. And I, I just knew the Spirit of God confirmed in my heart, as Paul says in Romans 5, His Spirit confirms with our spirit that we are the children of God. We know it, we feel it, and we believe it. By and large, when the world hears the message of the Word of God, when it hears the Gospel, it says, this is nonsense, I don't need this, I don't need a Savior. They reject it anyway. But when it comes to the sheep, they say, this is a message of God to me. I know it, I believe it, with all my heart. And Christ says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gospel message is rest from God's law that hangs over us. What does the law do? It condemns us in our sin. The gospel is that Christ lived the life for his people that they never lived and that he died the death for them. That's the gospel. And they believe it. Well, it says here, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And that's what we are to do. And that's what the apostles did. The apostle Peter, James, John, all of the apostles, Bartholomew, they went into the world. And they preached Thomas to India. They all went. Paul, when he went to Asia, we have an instance here where the Lord said, you don't go there to Asia. Oh, but Paul, someone may exclaim, there are many that are dying and going to a lost eternity. God forbade him to go. Have a look. Acts 16, verse 6. Acts 16, verse 6. Now, when they had gone through, throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. God stopped him. After they were come to Mysia, Mysia, they stayed, essayed to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of, suffered them not. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision immediately, he endeavored to go into Macedonia assuredly. Notice, gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. You see, the Lord directs his people. Forbidden to go at that time to Asia. Why? Dr. John Gill says that it seems that there were not any elect at that particular moment to save. We can't be everywhere and anywhere, can we? We don't have the gift of omnipresence. Preachers don't have it. But he has called us to preach and to lead us, to direct us. I was just telling somebody the other day, preaching in Hemel Hempstead a little while ago, a young girl was listening to me preach. She wasn't from Hemel Hempstead, and I thought, I'm wasting my time here today with these people. They're not listening. And she said, you know, the Lord is... Convicting me. The Lord's just saved my mother. I said, where are you from? She said, from Liverpool. Long, long way away. But she said, you know, wherever I go now, I'm bumping into preachers. Where the Lord has his people. He, he determines the bounds of our habitation, doesn't he? We don't have all the time in the world, but the Lord knows who he is. And he will call them. And what do we do? We, we preach the gospel. We declare the message. And the elect will believe. What is the message? They that repent 
of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. It's simple. But you see, of course, the non-elect won't believe because he has a hard heart that thinks the gospel is foolish. Paul tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to them that believe not. It is foolishness. But you see, ah, God makes it the power and the wisdom, doesn't he? To those that believe. It's not foolishness to us. We see that there is no other way. We are taken out of our dark night of unbelief and brought to Christ. And we're brought to thirst. We thirsted for everything else but Christ. And God brings the sheep to the end of himself and brings him to Christ. Oh, there is Paul, forbidden to go to Asia, sent down to Macedonia to a small colony in Philippi. What does the Lord have to do? Well, he has to open Lydia's heart because nobody can. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended to the things which Paul spake concerning the Lord. And then the Lord has to break open the prison door, doesn't he, of the Philippian jailer. The Lord has to literally shake it and deal with that man and he comes under great conviction. Well, the Lord would have us preach. This angel says, here, notice, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. By the way, angel can mean messenger, can't it? We've seen that before. And he has a message. We must preach. We must preach the gospel. We must declare it, saying with a loud voice, fear God. Well, study the best commentators. They will tell you that really this essentially is the gospel. You, you can't, let me say this, the gospel, what is this fear? It's not the fear of dread. But the gospel brings us into a right apprehension of God. It brings us to fear God. There is mercy with the Lord that he may be feared. You've never really received the gospel until you really understand how high God is and how low you are and how low he had to humble himself in order to save his people. And when you are forgiven, you truly have a filial fear, a fear of veneration for God. This is what the gospel brings. The gospel is, is not simply an invitation, but the gospel brings us into a gospel way of life. We're no longer our own. We were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, says the Apostle Paul. And you see, you can only believe except you be born again. This is why we read in 1 John 1, 5, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You can't truly believe Christ truly is the Christ with all your heart, your soul, your mind, unless you're born again. I mean, really, when you believe, it actually changes you so that you bow and you honor Jesus Christ as Lord. So this is the message here, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. This is what the gospel brings into our lives. We start to now glorify God in the life. We give him back the life that we owe him. We start, as we sang there, didn't we, from Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? Did you know the Psalm 116 is given in context with a Heliel at the end of the Passover? And this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Even in the Psalm 118, that whole section is what we would say messianic and has completely wonderful salvation expressed in it. We even sang it there in the Psalm 116. What? I will take up the cup of salvation and give thanks to the Lord. He heard my cry. He delivered me. 
out of the horrible pit. That is salvation, isn't it? It's not just the pit of hell, but it's the pit of sin. The gospel lifts us up out of a past life to a new life. The gospel is not simply good news, my friends. But the gospel says, this is the way, walk in it. We only walk in that way by Christ. Paul says it is the love of Christ that constrains us. Nothing else will constrain a man but the love of Christ. His heart is melted. His heart is broken. He now wants to glorify God. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, By the tender mercies of God, offer up yourselves as living sacrifices. What are the tender mercies of God? All that he has done. You know what a tender mercy is? Well, it's by the tender mercies from on high that the day spring came into this world, Jesus Christ. And it is by him and through him that we live. Well, my friends, the gospel does not promise anything to those who are not elect. Let me just say that. The gospel is not good news to all men. I I can show that to you very clearly from Romans chapter 2. Because Paul even says that sinners will be judged by the gospel. The gospel is good news to all who repent and believe upon Christ. Because Christ is the balm. Christ is is the paschal lamb. Christ is the one who died for his sheep. And his sheep died to the world and they lived to him. But the non-elect, in pride, they consider the gospel foolishness. In pride, they're offended at it. In pride, they, they say, well, I have a righteousness. God will accept me. Nothing but the grace of God will cause a man to repent and believe anyway. Nothing but the grace of God. And you see, finally, it's only the elect, the 144,000, the ones that are redeemed by his blood that were there upon the Mount Sion. So what else does John see? Well, he sees this everlasting gospel. Well, again, John, we've mentioned a little something about this everlasting gospel. John knew something about this because he was there at that discourse when Christ prayed, wasn't he? Remember when the Lord said in his high priestly prayer, Thine they were, thou hast given them to me. They were always the fathers, weren't they? John was there in John 6.37, when the Lord said, All that the Father give me shall come to me. All. And this is why the gospel must go into all the world. And God gives us opportunity to preach, and everyone will hear. And uh, my dear friends, the gospel is to the redeeming of men's souls, isn't it? It is. The gospel is not, as I say, a hit-and-miss activity, a hit-and-miss campaign, where God is just wringing his hands, waiting to see who's going to believe. Foolish. Yes, we must go out with all the ardor that God gives us, and we must preach with all of our hearts. We must labor as if there is no tomorrow, but God will save. It's all in his hands. Not one of the elect will be lost. Now, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. The gospel is a call to fear God and to give glory to him. Let me say that. You know, God doesn't just simply save somebody to take them to heaven, but that they give glory to him And they fear him in this life. To live reverentially toward him. And uh, to give glory to him. Because remember, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. For by grace are you saved, he says, through faith, which is the gift of God. Which is not of yourselves, he says, by the way. But it's of God, lest any man should boast. Even faith is of God. Even your quickening is of God. And even your good works are predetermined by God before that you should walk in them. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Now notice, 
He says also here, for the hour of his judgment is come. The word judgment, I'm sure if you've heard me say many a time, can mean deliverance, and it does mean deliverance. John Gill most excellently says here in comments, for the hour of his judgment is come. He says, not of the great and last judgment, but of his, the government of the Lord Jesus Christ is committed to him by God the Father. This judgment, this deliverance, is now in Christ's hands, and he has his kingdom. And his kingdom has even come to rule and reign in our hearts. Remember in the book of Judges, when the people sinned, God raised up a judge, didn't he? A deliverer. But Christ is our deliverer. Judgment has come for us. He shall bring in judgment for the Gentiles, we're told in Isaiah. Yes, that's what we're told. Even in Isaiah 30, verse 18, And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he have, may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. You see, mercy and deliverance come in the context of God's judgment, his deliverance to his people. That's very vital to see. Now, we have a second angel. We move down to the verse 8 now. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, by this time, many, sadly, Christians had been martyred. Martyred even by the Romans and by the Jews. The time now, somewhere around 95 AD. You think of the great Caesars, Nero, Augustus Caesar. Domitian, Diocletian, think of all the great persecutors. Rome was a great persecutor. And we see here, even now Babylon is fallen. Babylon. Let us first of all make this comment. Let us not make the confused thinking, or let us not be confused with what so often people do. Babylon, we are not to confuse with the whore of Babylon. There's Babylon here, which pictures the world. And then later, in Revelation 17, we will see the whore of Babylon, the one that actually rides on the beast. Babylon is the beast. Babylon is the world. And Rome at this time, by the way, is, we could say, symbolically speaking, the center of the world. So much in Rome, it had so much power, everybody feared Nero. Everybody feared these great leaders. Now, Nero's already died. Nero claimed to be a sort of demigod. They feared him. They worshipped. There was Nero worship. There was emperor worship. Even now, we, we know what's happened. Time now, somewhere around 95 AD, Rome burnt. 74, I think it is, A.D., somewhere around there. Rome burnt, destruction. Christians were already blamed. The empire is starting to show its cracks. The world is epitomized in the Roman Empire, we could say. And, in fact, Western civilization really derives so much, doesn't it, from Rome. And even think today of the spiritual dimensions and the power that Rome has, the influence. Oh, it may not wield political influence, but Rome, the Church of Rome, sways the masses throughout India, throughout South America. Rome itself. If you turn to Revelation 17, I don't want us to confuse Babylon here with the false bride, the harlot, prostituting herself with the world, and who was made drunk and intoxicated with the blood of the saints. And it's interesting that she is intoxicated with the blood of the saints, and so is the beast. Babylon, the beast, is the one pictured with the seven crowns. And we must never forget Revelation 13, verse 1 and so on, the first beast that comes out and really, that represents political power and so on. Revelation 17, 1, 
And there came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth, notice, have committed fornication. So immediately, you have a separation here between world powers and this whore. There's this, been this fornication between the two. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit under the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. Now here we have the beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. That's the beast. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I saw her, and I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee of the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. Now don't forget, as I said, Revelation 13. We see the beast coming out of the sea, which represents political power. And this woman is riding on the back of such an one. And she even has the name of Babylon on her head. It doesn't mean to say she's Babylon, but she serves the world. Remember, just as the saints have the mark of God upon their forehead, but this one, she serves the world. She's worldly. It's a worldly church. It's a church that stirs up and whips up the nations to, to drink the blood of the saints. Terrible. I trust we may be able to identify who this is. Well, our 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26, paragraph 4, tells us about the Pope and Rome. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof of the church, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church and against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now remember, as we said in chapter 13, that there are two beasts. One is lamb-like, and one is the beast that comes out of the sea. One is religious persecution, and we see that here. Now, Rome is all-embracing. It's worldly. Let me read to you from Rome's Second Vatican Council, Vaticanus II, which addressed relations between the Catholic Church and the modern world in 1964. From Lumen Gentium, which really is the dogmatic constitution on the Church, and it's one of the principal documents in the Second Vatican Council. Quote, The plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator, in the first place among whom are the Muslims, these profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one merciful God and mankind's judge on the last day. If that doesn't send shocks down your spine, I don't know what will. But we do not worship the same God as the God of Islam. We are not brothers with such Pope Paul the Sixth. In his Ecclesiam Swam 107 on August the 6th, 1964, said, Then we refer to the adorers of God according to the conception of monotheism, the Muslim religion especially, deserving of our admiration for all that is true and good in their worship of God. That is the dogma of Rome. Now you see what I'm saying. And what Rome will do is they will say 
that the saints are too exclusive. Billy Graham, sadly, shook hands with Rome long before he even went into ministry. Babylon here, by the way, is believed to be the world. And at this time, Rome, as I said, was the world's empire. At this known time, already what he's saying is Babylon represents the world. The world has already fallen. And every empire, man basically, is fallen. And no matter how much this harlot tries to whip up the world, it is a fait accompli. See the Lamb upon Mount Zion. See the close of this chapter. The wicked will perish. Don't lose heart. John Gill again says, Rome is called Babel in the same ancient writings of the Jews where some copies read Babel, others read Rome. And Tertullian, who wrote long before the appearance of the Romish Antichrist, says, without John, Babylon is a figure of the Roman city, and of this it is said, it is fallen, it is fallen, which words are repeated for the certain confirmation of it as a matter of fact. For the fall of Antichrist will certainly be in the spiritual reign of Christ in the Philadelphian church state. There's a, a word there as well. Now remember that this beast has a wounded head already. Do you remember? In Revelation chapter 13, and he, he recovers. And well, it seems they've got another Caesar on the throne. But you know, it's already fallen. Destruction has already come. Man has already fallen. Christ is already on his throne, isn't he? We still have old sayings, don't we? When in Rome, it was the Romans. You've heard the saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. These sayings are still around, whether it be government. People still look to the old Roman Empire. Rome wasn't built in a day. Man thinks he can conquer. Man thinks he will stand against God. Rome is really just the epitome of proud, haughty, fallen mankind. Let me say, that is coming to assure destruction. And you know, though hand joined in hand, the scriptures say, they will not stand against the Lord. Religions, and the World Council of Churches may join hand in hand, may even persecute the true church of God, but the saints will not deny the faith once delivered unto the saints. Her fornication, that is the harlot with the beast, it meant the idolatry of the church of Rome, and you think of it, it is a place of filth and disgust. Nothing less. Debauchery. Papal supremacy is the doctrine of the Catholic Church. And by reason of that office, he is in the place of Christ. He's called the vicar of Christ. But my friends, Christ is the only head of the church. Not even our monarch. He is not head of the church. Not even head of any church. But we come back to Babylon. Not just Rome but the entire world, the entire Babylon of this world. Let me say this, friends, no kingdom will stand against Christ's kingdom. No religious persecution will thwart Christ's purposes. He said, I will build my church. He has his gospel. The angel says, preach to all the world. The elect will come in. They will believe because Christ's spirit attends his word. Finally, a third angel warning. Verse 9, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now this, I know, perhaps causes many people to be greatly concerned. I remember as a young man reading this once and thinking, what happens if I accidentally get the mark of the beast on me? I'm going to be cast into the everlasting 
flames. I don't want to receive the beast. And there have been people looking in the mirror, doing all sorts of strange things, wondering, do I have this mark? Well, what is the mark of the beast? Who is the beast? Well, we're told, Revelation 13, that it is the world and all of its systems and its ethos and its governments and its mindset. If you have that mark upon your head, the mark on the head is the way you think. Upon your hand is your actions. If you have that mark now, you're part of the world. And only God can take people out of this world, spiritually speaking. That's what he's saying here. If any man worship the beast, the beast again is the world. The beast is not the dragon. The dragon we see in chapter 12, let's not get confused. The beast is what? The world that comes out of the abyss, we're told in Daniel 7. It is the nations and the people and the leaders and the ethos, the whole system of the world. Love not the world, John says, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The person that has this mark upon his head, what are in your thoughts, friend? Well, it's depicted in your actions, isn't it? Your thoughts are often seen by what you do, what you're working for, who you're living for. If any man receives this, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is a warning, isn't it? Now, of course, God's people are kept by the warnings. Remember what the Lord Jesus said. He said, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. He says, if, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. Who was he speaking to there? His disciples. You say, really? Yes, have a look. Mark 9. You don't have to look there now. But in both occasions, in both Gospels, he's speaking to the disciples. Why? Because the disciples are kept by the warnings. And the, the Lord is saying, don't love the world. Because if you love the world, you're going to perish with it. You don't love Christ. You can't love and serve two masters, can you? But he said, my sheep hear my voice, they come to me. He says, I know them, and they follow me. John 10, 27. And I give unto them eternal life. They're all kept by the warnings. As I say, verse 9 has got many people concerned. And they're actually looking in the mirror. But you need to look at your soul, not your forehead, not your hand. You need to look at your life. I need to look at my life. Well, it's important to remember this, isn't it? That this mark of the beast is not Satan. And you're not looking for a number or a barcode on your head or some chip implanted into you. But whether you are of the world, whether you have the mark of the beast, which is the mark of the world, not the mark of Satan. It's the number of man, isn't it? 666, which comes short of the glory of God. It's, it's man without God. It's not seven. Man rested on the Sabbath with God. But a life without God now will end in a lost eternity without God. Finally, there's so much ground to cover here. But I want to just close with this. What happens? Same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he, shall, <clears throat> and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Yes, in hell, there is a very real reality of God's presence. It's his angry presence. God, who is omnipresent, will be there. It will be the angry presence of a holy God. And notice it is forever, verse 11, and ever. And the smoke of their torment descendeth up forever and ever. Well, you say, well, many people are greatly perturbed at this. Everlasting punishment. Why? Well, because God is holy, first of all. And secondly, he cannot change. He's immutable. 
God will always be angry at sin. And sinners won't change in hell. It's solemn, isn't it? And it is endless, everlasting torment. Cast outside of the presence of God. We have it, don't we, in that picture of Lazarus and the rich man. A gulf fixed that can never be closed. Now notice, all who receive this mark, that's where they go. That's lost man. That's man without God, isn't it? And if we're saved, ought to make us very thankful. Ought to make us very humble. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep his commandments, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. Well, you see, with all of this in view, it really makes you thankful. In the midst of a persecuting world, you see the end of the unjust. You see the end of the wicked. Here is the patience of the saints. This is what will keep them. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. We have labors here. There was a time when labor didn't seem like labor. But we rest from our labors when we pass here. We'll no longer be laboring by the sweat of our brow. But our works will follow us. We'll go on serving God and glorifying him in a wonderful way. And we'll never grieve again. We'll never grieve God. We'll never grieve each other. Well, friends, there's no purgatory here. I don't see it. Do you? It says that they go to torment forever and ever. Everlasting fires of hell. Christ spoke so often of hell and judgment. Daniel 12, 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And friends, this ought to humble us if we have been changed, if God has dealt mercifully with our hearts. Do we have his mark upon us? He's in our thoughts. And the proof is, he's in our hands. He's in our actions. We labor now for him, and our works will go on. We'll go on loving him, giving him glory, won't we, for the mercy that he has shown us. Amen.